I'm Elizabeth Hill, and this is 51%. She was the only female comedian who stuttered in the stand-up comedy world when she began more than 10 years ago. Nina G says that's likely attributable to a society that is not inclusive or accessible to those who experience this disability. She details her struggles and triumphs in her memoir, Stutterer Interrupted, The Comedian Who Almost Didn't Happen. She spoke with 51%'s Allison Dunn in September 2019 about how it all started. Well, I have been a fan of stand-up comedy since I was like four years old. It's always been the thing that kind of connected with me most when I like like in 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 third grade, I had to make a sock puppet and I named it. E- Edith Ann after Lily Tomlin's character, uh, and so that was in in and my sock puppet eventually met Lily Tomlin and was signed. So I'm very very proud of that, and that continued on. I loved comedians like Gilda Ratner. My parents were always very open with what I was able to watch on TV, so I was exposed to stand-up comedy on HBO. My mom was a big fan of Richard Pryor, so I was exposed to his stand-up when I was uh, when I was a little kid, and so that nerdum just kind of turned into wanting to be a comedian when I was around. Eleven、uh, years old, but even though I started to write material and look for open mics, over the years that dream disintegrated because I'm a person who stutters, and I never thought that someone who stutters could be a stand-up comic. Who dispelled that? Was it you, surrounded by people who encouraged you? Was it someone else? Where did where did that voice come from, within or outside? About who cares that you stutter? Go for it. Well, the dream died when I was seventeen, and it got picked back up when I was thirty-five. So there was a big gap there, and part of what happened there was I went to a conference for people who stutter at the net. National Stuttering Association, and being around other people who stuttered really helped me to look at that and to challenge myself. And it's not like I was at the conference and was like, "I'm going to start the stand-up comedy." But what I realized at the conference was how much I had relinquished space to other people. It, there's this thing when you stutter. Stutter that you're interrupted all the time. Like you'll try to get out a word, and people just start to guess it. Like it's the Price is Right or something. Like we'll just burp, burp, burp. But what I found was that I had interrupted myself in terms of my dreams and my wishes, and how I was interrupting myself in conversations with other people, and holding back because I didn't want to put the burden of my stutter on them. And when I went to that conference. I realized that as women, we tend to give up space, and as a woman who stutters, it felt like I was doing that double. And when I came back, I was determined to reclaim that space in many aspects of my life. And within six months, I got up on stage and told my first 
dirty joke. You know, I'm always I'm always looking to this idea of role models. You know, it's always important to see someone that looks like you um, that you can envision yourself doing something similarly. And I'm interested to know, I mean, I imagine you are a role model for others, but you didn't have that because you were the first comedian, female comedian who stutters doing stand up. So who who's who are you looking to as role models? Was it just other people who who weren't necessarily comedians, but in that space, as you said, that double space of a woman who stutters? So for me, the role models who I look to and I think role models can be very like the, 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 there there were uh, a lot of them that I looked toward when I first started doing the stand-up comedy. For example, the first thing I did was I searched online to see if there was other stuttering stand-up comics, and there was. I found this guy, Jody Fuller, who is still a Canadian, and he tours everywhere and does a lot of professional speaking. So I was like, ah, okay, I'm not the first one. This is a thing. And I watched his stand-up, and it was great to see somebody who talked like me who was communicating and who was being funny and who was on stage. So that was important. But then also looking toward the stand-up comics who used their comedy as social activism and looking at people like Wanda Sykes, who um, who was able to integrate comedy and so and 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 the social activism. So that to me was a really important thing. And also people like Dick Gregory, who have been doing that for years and years. The first time you did stand up, how old were you? And then you know, kind of fast forward. How has your comedy evolved and the reception to it? I hope mm-hmm. evolved. Uh, the first time that I stepped on stage, I was so dirty. 36. And I've been doing it for almost 10 years. And the reception, it's, I I think in the past couple years, we've gotten more sensitive. And so people are showing their sensitivity in ways that aren't always helpful. So for me, the past couple years, when I'm doing my act sometimes, and this isn't every time, but sometimes women will turn to each other and do like, oh, oh, isn't this sweet? Oh, oh, she experiences discrimination. Oh, and like kind of takes the power out of my jokes and is a pitiful kind of thing. And as a comedian, I really don't want to be pitied. But also as a person with a disability, I don't want to be pitied. And I think that people sometimes disrupt our voice because they want us to be inspirations or they want us to be pitiful because that is what they've seen in the media. That's what they've seen on their Facebook. And we need to rethink how we think about the disability, and in my particular case, the the stuttering, because it doesn't have to be pitiful. It doesn't have to be an inspiration. It can be neutral. It can be powerful. It can be all kinds of things. You know, since you've been to conferences um, on this and and, uh, have been in this, a disability advocate for quite some time, 
Do you think that the experience just from speaking with men is different for men who stutter? Is the is it different for men? I think what is different for men, I, I think men also experience that situation where they hold back because of their stuttering. And I think it's important for everybody who stutters to kind of own their power and to claim their space. I think the, the difference between men and women, at least from my point of view, has been that sometimes I feel that I get a little more than my male stuttering friends because they don't think that a woman is going to stick up for herself. And they very quickly learn that I do. And for example, once a comedian, I was being introduced to him and I, and I said my name and I stuttered a, a teeny tiny bit. And he said, is that Nina with five N's? And I said, no, that is Nina with two N's. And I gave the finger on both fingers. So I kind of relish in those situations, but it's not something that I necessarily look for or that I want, and I definitely don't want those situations for other people. I do comedy because I love comedy. It is my favorite thing in the world. It is the one constant that I have always loved. I mean, the first person who I had crushes or the first people who I had crushes on were stand-up comics. And when I was in college, any time that I had to write a paper, it was on comedy. That It's something that is so close to my heart. And for me, I probably would have done comedy no, no matter what. But because I stutter, I think I do it in a specific way because I also understand the need for activism and the need for advocacy. And being brought up in the Bay Area where there was a very strong disability community, and I learned how important that aspect is and looking toward Comedians like, 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 like Dick Gregory, who was a black activist and a comedian, and how those things were integrated in and the need for that. Talk about stutter splaining. So there's this thing that happens when you stutter or you have a disability. That as soon as someone meets you, they suddenly have a PhD in the thing you have. And it always comes in multiple forms. One of the forms, and I'm sorry, NPR, but one of the things that happens is people say things like, I was listening to NPR. And people automatically think that they have a, have a master's degree in the thing that you have because they heard a segment on NPR. I also live near Berkeley, California, so this is amplified a bit. But just so everyone out there knows, just because you hear this, you don't, you, you only know a teeny bit about the stuttering from one perspective. But 
it's important to know, but it's also important to be very humbled by the information that you get, that there's so much more information. And there's this other thing about stuttering is that people want it to be cured. People have advice all the time, whether it's slow down and breathe, as if we've never thought of that in the many, many years we have been stuttering. There are old wives' tales of how to cure things. People have told me to sing. But stuttering is thought to be related to a difference in the brain on the left side, and the left side is the language the side of the brain. So when people sing who stutter, then they're fluent, or if they use kind of a, a, a different intonation or voice, then they don't stutter as much. And the best example there is Marilyn Monroe, who had stuttered. And that's why she talks like this, because she's able to bypass that part of the brain where stuttering was. And once I was talking to a guy about this, and I explained all of that to him, and then I did the voice, he said, that's very sexy. Maybe you should talk like that all the time. I was like, no, that's good. I'd rather stutter than to talk that way. And so for me, those are the examples of stutter explaining that, like, you know, you're not an expert on this, even though your second cousin once removed stuttered. It's a different kind of stutter. Maybe they were hiding it from you more than, than, than you actually knew. So hold the advice. Just shut up and listen to all of the brilliant things that we have to say. That was comedian and disability advocate Nina G. speaking with 51% Allison Dunn. You can hear the full interview on episode 1576. In the fall of 2019, I spoke with Jessica Holmes about her book, Depression the Comedy, A Tale of Perseverance. Holmes is a comedian and writer. She is open for comedians like Jerry Seinfeld and Ellen DeGeneres, After battling postpartum depression and regular run-of-the-mill garden variety depression, Holmes began openly sharing her mental health story using humor. She says her work as a mental health advocate pushed her to intertwine comedy with a palatable conversation about depression. I do a lot of public speaking, and I call it motivational comedy, where I mix mental health messages with comedy and uh, silly impressions and stuff. And people were always coming up to me after the show. I could see in their eyes they had some pain, but they didn't even know where to begin. And they were kind of shy. They're in front of all these other people. And I felt like if I could just put my presentation into a book, so it's just a funny, easy to read, lighthearted introduction to depression, I felt like that could be helpful to them. And I'm really grateful to say it has been. I'm getting some nice feedback from it. How did you become a mental health advocate? When did you start doing these presentations? Probably five minutes after I recovered from depression, only because comedians, we say tragedy plus time equals comedy or stress plus time equals comedy. And for me, depression plus time equals comedy. And when I finally got out of this horrible two years of feeling like I was trapped in cement, I just wanted to share my experience and I wanted to say, oh, my gosh 
if I was in this for so long and I didn't even realize it, how many other people are kind of suffering but not speaking up or not seeking help for themselves. So I felt really moved right away to get to it. I started probably of four, four and a half years ago. Going back to comedians and depression, you have a really good chapter in your book, What Comes First, The Comedian or the Depression? Can you talk about that a little bit? (laughs) Sure. Um, There's a comedian named Mike McDonald, and his line was, there are two types of comedians, depressed and undiagnosed. And I, I had a chat with him for this chapter, and I just said, what is it? Are we... Are we just really sensitive, predisposed people who end up in this line of work? Or does the lifestyle of like being totally in demand and thousands of screaming fans and then suddenly nobody calls you for three months? I I was like, which one is it? And he and I both felt and the consensus among comedians is that it's it's both. We have to be very sensitive people who are introspective to get into this line of work in the first place. And then, you know, it, it can be tricky to manage your, your ego, your hurt feelings. Um, there have been a lot of high profile. Obviously, Robin Williams would have been, you know, the highest profile and um, comedian to go through that. But um, there are a number of people. Howie Mandel does a lot of work on behalf of mental health. The great thing is, though, now that we talk about it more, it's so much easier for people to identify what they're going through earlier and seek help. And then to know also that there's less stigma attached. You you aren't necessarily, you know, going to end your career by saying, I think there's something wrong with me and I need help. I'm curious to hear how you approached your treatment and what effects it did or didn't have on your family. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, first of all, I was really gung-ho to get treatment. I mean, it had been two years of me on the sofa. Six months of it was the worst where I truly, just between nine and five, I, I didn't want to get up at all. So that affected my family in that I I was angry all the time. I mean, there's people suffer depression in all different ways, but my biggest telltale sign was that I was angry at myself and angry at the world because I couldn't snap out of it. I couldn't feel better. So my kids ended up making a screen chart where they would just give me an X anytime I would lose my temper. And I wasn't losing it at them. It's just like if I spilled the milk, I would cry and yell about it for 20 minutes. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, So when I did finally know what it was, I was kind of relieved because I felt like, oh, my gosh, if I can get better, I can be like a normal mother. I can be a mother who doesn't cry when the milk spills. And I can be a normal wife who doesn't blame her husband's shoes at the front door for depression and stuff like that. So they have been incredibly supportive. And my daughter even recently did uh, a project at school. She's 12 now. And she did a project on depression. So there's all kinds of compassion within the four walls of our home. And forgiving myself for the for that part was probably the toughest work that I had to do. But my therapist was a great help with that. The other part of your question was just about, you know, how did I end up getting out of it and out of the depression? And that was a mix of many different things. And I had to try them over and over and over for about six months before I saw any change. Those are things like exercise, learning to talk to yourself in a loving, kind way, um, not comparing yourself to other people, staying off social media, getting excited about a goal. There's, you know, the the list is very long and some things will work for people and, and some things won't. Yeah, I definitely, I was really ready to get out of that depression. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find any of that harder because you are in the public eye as a comedian and as an actress? Well, I felt I felt a bit embarrassed for the performances I had been doing 
when I was in the depression, because I could still suck it up for an hour a day uh, or an hour a week if I knew, okay, I have to pay my mortgage, I have to do this show. But I was just doing tired old material. And in my heart, I was so sad on stage, like on the verge of crying, but I would I would just put on a brave face and say, this is my greatest acting challenge ever. And I would, you know, just bull through it. Um, and when I came out of the depression, I just decided, okay, I never want to be that kind of performer again, who's just showing up and reciting lines. I, I want to get on stage and genuinely share what I'm feeling and be more authentic. And, uh, and so I feel like there's a, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot riding on my mental health. It's my career. It's my family. And um, more than anything, it's my own feeling of well-being. So I do everything every day. I take good care of myself like I was living the dream senior citizen lifestyle. <laughs> Early to bed, lots of rest, <laughs> healthy food. Yep. Did you find that there was a different stigma for when you suffered postpartum depression versus when you went into this serious depression of two years? Do you know what? You're the first person to ask that, but it is an excellent question. And I actually did feel a difference. I had suffered postpartum depression after my second child was born, but I got it treated and I felt like, oh, that was just about the baby that was just about you know that has nothing to do with me it could happen to anyone but I felt more sort of shame with um, the -the run-of-the-mill garden variety (laughs) depression I went through because for that one I felt like oh my gosh I think my head is broken like and you know people hear about that and they don't just write it off as circumstantial I could feel sometimes people thinking maybe I was lazier it was because I didn't take good care of myself or it's because I'm a flaky person. And so I have, I've had to fight against that stigma a lot more. And I, I still have friends who they love me, but I'm pretty sure they think depression is kind of a made up yeah. thing, <laughs> illness. Um, so I've dedicated the rest of my career to mental health. And I'm, I can't think of anything more important to me to get the message out, especially having lived through it. I mean, I'm so grateful for opportunities like this where I can just come out and say, you know what, depression is very real. It's the same as any other physical illness, but it affects your mind and uh, it's nobody's fault. And we should take care of our mental health, just like we were taking care of our oral hygiene. You know, you brush your teeth, you take care of your mental health. (laughs) (laughs) We've discussed it uh, throughout this interview. The stigma of mental health is changing and it's better than it was, say, 10 years ago, even five but there are still many people who aren't comfortable dealing with or admitting to a mental health struggle publicly, as you've stated. Mm -hmm. What advice do you give them? Well, first and foremost, I just want to say to managers and to companies, the biggest thing you can do for your employees is to let them know there won't be consequences to coming forward about your mental health, letting, letting them know that you as a manager are someone that they can safely come to and talk to and that they can help arrange for either a leave of absence or, um, you know, for, for you to take off work early, the odd time to visit a doctor or take care of your needs without it permanently affecting your career. So that's something leadership can do. And then as for people themselves, I would just say your mental health is the most important thing in your life. It's your feelings. It's the basis for your sense of self-worth and and wellness. So in my opinion, it even comes before your job. And um, there is a saying by Ian LeVan Zant, she's an author, And she said, my cup runneth over. What's in it belongs to me and what runneth over belongs to y'all. And uh, I interpret that as you take care of yourself first 
And once you're doing okay, then you can go out into the world and offer your services out there. But I hope people will take really good care of themselves. And there are small things you can do that only add about five minutes to your day, but that will help your mental health. And so I hope people will take a look at the book and learn a little bit about the changes that I've made because I haven't overhauled my life. My life doesn't look that different on paper, but there are certain small things I do every day just to take care of me. And there's the difference between me slipping back into a depression and not. And you know what? I also just want people to know it's not your fault. I'm so sorry you're dealing with that and it will get better. So please don't give up. Please keep going and know that every day is another chance to start over. As a mental health advocate and as somebody who goes and does professional speaking on the topic, what are your thoughts on mental health and gun violence that we're seeing across the globe? Yeah, that is that is really um, something tragic we're seeing in the news on a weekly basis right now. And I do feel that there has to be better access to mental health care. I think there has to be better screening. Like, for example, I went to see my doctor one day and it was a GP and uh, I, I was there to get my thyroid checked. But I said, do you know what else I notice? I notice I feel angry a lot. And they just said, oh, well, that's not my department. But I sort of feel like, listen, why aren't all health professionals making sure to check in about our mental health, making sure to ask us things? I wish there was more free mental health service. I wish that more, particularly men, I wish more men would speak up uh, about their mental health journeys to kind of give other men permission to do the same and to know that you can still be manly, you can still be strong, and also try and deal with emotional pain that you're that you're suffering. I think the mental health care and, and reducing the stigma and increasing services would, would go a long way. That's my two cents. Lastly, how has the healing continued for you through your comedy? Mm-hmm. You know what? Every day I just want to find an authentic way to be funny and to make it about mental health to heal the audience. And that's why last year I decided I'm not a comedian. I'm a motivational comedian. I'm a comedian who wants to like help people through laughter and and through healing. So I find it exciting to have that goal and to know that I can, you know, listen to an Oprah (laughs) audio book and then kind of find some material out of that so that you're making people feel good kind of on on two fronts. But absolutely, there's so much work to be done in terms of making people aware, more aware about mental health and how easy some of the little things are that we can change in our day to help us have a better sense of well-being. And so if I can put that in between a joke or two, a little knock-knock joke here and there, (laughs) then I will totally keep doing it. That was comedian and mental health advocate Jessica Holmes. Thanks for joining us for this week's 51%. I'm your guest host, Elizabeth Hill. Thanks to Ian Pickus and Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Lolita by Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 51% is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with your friends, sign up for our podcast or visit wamc.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 51% Radio.